The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the eyes of an angel in the shadow of victory, a torturer with the spirit of a healer, more from the world of an ocean without end, and a Bane author takes to the podcast stage for the first time. Welcome to the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bane Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Today we welcome Susan R. Matthews to her first ever Bane podcast in the first of a two-part interview discussing the release of Fleet Inquisitor, an omnibus volume containing the first three novels in her Under Jurisdiction series. This is the story of Andre Kosciusko, a medical student and aristocrat forced for the sake of his family's honor to serve the totalitarian galactic government as an inquisitor and torturer. Along the way, he befriends criminals, agents of the jurisdiction's bench, saves lives, takes them, and even works to stop a genocide. And of course we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. That's all coming up. Now here's the news. New hardcovers are coming on Tuesday, ladies, gentlemen, and baniacs of all description. And what a month. What a month. There are only two titles to speak of, but with a new Freehold novel from Michael Z. Williamson and no less than the next Honorverse book from David Weber, what else could you hope for? First up is Michael Z. Williamson's Angel Eyes, bringing us back to the world of Freehold. Angie Kenishiro never planned to be a spy. She was a veteran of the Freehold forces of grain and was now a tramp freighter crewwoman who hadn't set foot on the dirt of a world in ten years. Angie was free, and that was the way she liked it. Then the war with Earth started. One thing Angie knew was human space. She knew where the UN troops garrisoned, the methods they used to scan and chip their own to control them. Even better, she had a mental map of the access conduits, the dive bars, and the makeout cubbies people used to get around restrictions. The UN forces may hold most of the stations, the docks, and the jump points, but now the freehold of grain has its own lethal weapon— Angie Kaneshiro. The intelligence branch sends a freighter crewed with blazers, special forces troops. All Angie has to do is lead them through the hole. Responsibility for the explosions and wreckage will be theirs. But war is complicated, and heroes can be forged in its crucible, even if the hero turns out to be a tramp freighter crewwoman, determined to fight for the freedom she loves. And the second book out this month is David Webber's Shadow of Victory, the Mason Alignment has a plan, one it's been working on for centuries, a plan to remake the galaxy and genetically improve the human race its way. Until recently, things have gone pretty much as scheduled, but then the Alignment hit a minor bump in the road called the Star Empire of Manticore. In order to undercut Manticore's galaxy-wide reputation as a star nation of its word, it launched Operation Janus, a false flag covert operation to encourage rebellions it knows will fail by promising Manticoran support. The twin purposes are to harden Salarian determination to destroy the Star Empire once and for all and to devastate the Star Empire's reputation with the rest of the galaxy. But even the best laid plans can have unintended consequences. And one of those consequences, in this case, may just be a new dawn of freedom 
for oppressed star nations everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with Susan R. Matthews for Fleet Inquisitor. To catch part two, tune in to the podcast next week. I'd like to welcome Susan R. Matthews to her first-ever Bane podcast. Susan R. Matthews is the author of the Under Jurisdiction Space Opera series, which presently comprises six books, originally published between 1997 and 2006, as well as the novels Avalanche Soldier and Colony Fleet. Fleet Inquisitor, new from Bane this month, collects the first three volumes of Miss Matthews' Under Jurisdiction series for the first time in one volume. It recounts the education and rise of Andre Kosciusko, a surgeon who is forced into the role of a ship's inquisitor and made to torture prisoners. Susan Matthews also served in the Army, after which she worked for Boeing and graduated with an MBA from Seattle University. She lives now in Seattle. Thanks for being here, Miss Matthews. Thanks for having me, Christopher. Oh, absolutely. Um, so let's jump right into it. A Fleet Inquisitor is a space opera set in a galaxy where these various humanoid hominid cultures are being taken over by a totalitarian regime called the Jurisdiction, which serves as the backdrop for these first three volumes. Can you tell us a bit about the Jurisdiction? What is it that really sets them apart from most of the uh, galactic empires our readers might be familiar with? Well, you know, uh, most of what I've heard about or read about in terms of space opera before uh, has been, you know, um, very much focused on a government based on military power, a militaristic or authoritarian regime, or one that's based on an hereditary or meritocracy sort of an aristocracy environment. And so I started uh, looking at different foundations for governments that would maybe not have a direct correlation with any with which I was familiar in the modern world. And what occurred to me was examining the uh, government of the United States. We've got legislative branch, executive branch, and the, and the legal branch. And so I thought that was interesting. I had a longstanding interest in Chinese history and picked up the idea of uh, what might have happened after an unimaginably long period of time if the Supreme Court had taken over and absorbed the executive and legislative branches and then gone just a little bit out of its mind. <laughs> so jurisdiction is based on the concept of a government that founds its legitimacy in the rule of law and the judicial order. In a way, it's kind of, sort of, approximately analogous to the Roman model uh, in its earlier incarnations. Now, our hero is Andre Kosciusko, a medical student whose father has ordered him to serve in the jurisdiction's fleet for eight years, which means he's not only going to be healing people, but torturing them as well. Uh, can you tell us about Andre? Uh, why exactly is he forced into this unpleasant line of work? Andre's kind of in a difficult position where he comes from. Uh, the Dolgariki Combine, Andre's system of origin, has a social uh, environment, a culture based on big familial corporations. And one of the oldest, if not among the biggest, of the Dolgaruki familial corporations is the Kosciusko familial corporation. Andre is the inheriting son of the Kosciusko prince. Uh, in, in this environment, all the sons of a prince are a prince and so on and so forth. And the tradition in his culture is that 
when the inheriting prince or prince inheritor has has gotten to be old enough uh, to start to feel his oats, you get him out of the house. You get him out of the environment for a period of time uh, to keep him out of his father's way, among other things, uh, to kind of try to mitigate the tensions that arise in a family, especially between fathers and oldest sons. Um, and part of that tradition that's grown up is that uh, inheriting sons will go off for several years and serve their community by way of demonstrating their demonstrating their con- their commitment to the time honored authority structures of their culture. Now, before the jurisdiction found the Dolgoriki Combine, that was going to uh, to work for the autocrat in some form or another. And if you were a uh, a young man, then the logical place for you to go would be to fleet and serve the autocrat in the military structure or environment. But the jurisdiction ran into the Dolgoriki Combine, and so these days the... Uh, Dolgoruki fleets are much reduced in scope, and all of the proud members of the Dolgoruki Combine are very much aware of the fact that there is a much larger government out there with a much bigger, sexier, and impressive fleet. So Andre's father, for instance, when the time came for him to uh, uh, leave things alone for a while in his home culture, he went to jurisdiction's fleet. And as a matter of fact, Andre's father was in security for several years at the very beginning of the elaboration of the inquisitorial system. So there you go. Andre's the inheriting son. He's got to get out of the house and also uh, perform service to his social network or culture uh, structure uh, by doing service in the jurisdiction's fleet because it's got to be the biggest and best for the son of the Kosciuszko prince. And it's partly just that issue, it's got to be the biggest and best, that puts him in the, in the situation that we find him in at the beginning of exchange of hostages. He's been off by himself for several years, taking advanced surgical degree at uh, Mayon Medical College, which is, again, the biggest and best that you've got under jurisdiction. Uh, but he's graduated now, and it's time for him to stop playing and go off and do his bit uh, for the rule of law and the judicial order. So it's got to be the jurisdiction slate. He's a rated physician, and quite a good one, actually. That means the medical branch of the jurisdiction slate. And because of the peculiarity of the inquisitorial system, it's got to be the chief medical officer of a jurisdiction warship, which has, in the years since Andre's father was in security, uh, become a dual role, a medical officer and a judicial officer, ship's surgeon, ship's inquisitor. So it starts out more or less as an accident uh, of um, family background and family tradition that condemns Andre to step into the dual role of ship surgeon, ship's inquisitor matter of family pride and tradition. Does, does that uh, kind of answer the question, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a bit of a follow-up, though. Um, is the reason that Andre goes to the jurisdiction fleet instead of the Dolgaruki fleet because the jurisdiction has taken over his native culture? That's a, that's a really interesting question because it touches on the relationship between the jurisdiction's bench 
or the governing authority, and uh, the what you might call the planetary or world family uh, sorts of governments. Um, the jurisdictions fleet actually got its start uh, as something that might be considered similar to a coast guard. The jurisdictions fleet started out regulating the conduct of trade and enforcing trade regulations. Uh, so if you were um, Michigan, uh, for instance, and okay. you had a coastal defense fleet, and then you were uh, incorporated into a growing United States, you've got your Michigan Coastal Defense Fleet. I don't believe there was ever any such thing, but never mind. Okay. Suddenly faced with, let's say, the United States Navy. And the United States Navy is clearly sexier than the Michigan Home Defense Fleet. Uh, so you are naturally, if you are an ambitious person or if uh, you're concerned about whether or not your contribution is going to be valued on a much larger stage, you're going to go for the United States Navy rather than the Michigan Coastal Defense Fleet. Gotcha. I've I, I just been wondering that. Under jurisdiction, all of those world families that the bench has run into and co-opted, they're still allowed to maintain a coastal defense fleet of a, support, of a sort. Uh, as a matter of fact, those things are called home defense fleets. And they're smaller, uh, and they are subject to the bench's control and approval, and they're just plain not as sexy as the jurisdiction fleet. Uh, just pay your taxes and you can do what you want. Talented as he is, uh, Andre could neither be a surgeon nor a fleet torturer without help, though. Uh, can you talk about Von... Tell us about bond involuntaries and why they are absolutely critical to the function of fleet and the, the Inquisitors specifically. Well, I'd love to. <laughs> Several of my favorite characters are Bond and Volunteers. Mine too. Well, here's here's a uh, here's a the the problem of a system that's based on institutionalized torture as an instrument of state, and that problem is finding people who are willing to do the work. Part of my conviction is that under most under most circumstances, most people are not going to go into torture as a career choice, because historically, you can get most of the people to do horribly brutal things for some of the time, but you can't get very many people to do horrible things to other people all of the time. So the system, in order to work, requires a dedicated cadre of people who are basically uh, acting contrary to most of their basic human instincts. In other words, there are not going to be enough people that you can pay to do this work. So you need to find people that have to do this work, that you can make to do this work, uh, and it would probably be nice if you didn't have to pay them. So <laughs> you could recruit criminals because criminals are, are serving a punishment sentence anyway, and, and it's a form of punishment. Sure. Recruited criminals, you'd get, um, you'd get people that are probably strong and uh, intelligent and quick on their feet and don't mind being a little physical. Uh, it's 
one way to be a criminal, um, <laughs> but you still wouldn't have any way to make sure that, for instance, they didn't decide to haul off and assassinate an inquisitor instead of uh, protecting him. Uh, and you'd still get you find yourself facing the situation where all of a sudden one of your prisoners decided, look, you can't pay me enough to do this kind of work. And I don't care if my sentence is going to be reduced. I'm just, I just can't deal with it anymore. The solution to that is a program that is only, really only coming out of the experimental phase that involves taking somebody with the psychological resilience to deal with a horrific psychological burden and implant a governor in their brain that has direct access to pain centers in the brain. This is like a computer? It's a, I have always thought of it as being a uh, sort of a semi-organic. I always think of a spider, as a matter of fact. And that spider is listening for stress states. If you're a bond and voluntary, you have been exhaustively conditioned uh, with the most brutal means necessary to know exactly what you have to do under any circumstances immediately, perfectly, and according to your instructions. So if you find yourself not complying to your condition, with your conditioning at any point, the governor in your brain is going to say, this is a stress situation. He must be doing something wrong. Why don't I correct this behavior? And at the end of the process, you have uh, somebody with psychological resilience, somebody who has been trained, somebody knows exactly what they have to do, which kind of comes down to anything an inquisitor tells you. And you have um, instituted a means of total control of that person. So they got to do what they tell you. What they got to do, they have to do what you tell them or else. Yeah, and we get to see some of that or else in the book, and it is bone-chilling. It was one of the... Uh... One of the most affecting parts, I thought. It is probably uh, the incident that occurs in Prisoner of Conscience is quite possibly the worst thing that, on, in genuine terms, that Andre's ever done in his life. It certainly hit him that way. It was it was truly affecting. I'm, the... I'm glad because it was supposed to be. <laughs> well, yeah. Speaking of, uh, one of the other things I really liked about this was that Andre does have a bit of a dark side, or a lot of a dark side, uh, but you go to great lengths to demonstrate that despite this, he's still a fundamentally good person. Uh, would you mind talking a bit about this tension between the two parts of his character? Well, uh, I'd, I'd just like to set out, to start out by saying uh, that uh, I have a friend that I've known since I was high school, since, high, since I have known since I was in grade school, which is very unusual for an army brat to have um, a relationship that you've managed to maintain for all those years. And uh, on the occasion of the publication of The Exchange of Hostages, uh, my friends uh, read my novel, and uh, this particular friend uh, had a pertinent comment, I thought, that I enjoyed, and that comment was, Susan has always been at home to Mr. Darkside. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed that. Um, but the reason why, Andre, uh, why I would really like uh, you, the reader to sympathize with Andre and to go along, for the purposes of the text at least, for the purposes of the story, with the idea that he can be a fundamentally decent human being in many ways and still uh, suffer from the handicap and or the advantages 
for a torturer that he also uh, integrates into his personality, is that he is a deliberately extreme expression of my conviction that we are all capable of doing perfectly horrible things that may, may seem to come out of nowhere. And all of us are faced at one point or another with that kind of a conflict. I have just said or done something that is contrary to my conviction that normal, decent people say or do such things. How could I have done that or said that when I think that I'm a decent human being? I was thinking about this uh, the other day. As I said, Andre's situation, I've, I've made it deliberately very extreme, but I remember things that I have said from time to time to people in my life that seem to come out of left field. So, for instance, uh, let's start with, with road rage. People understand a little bit about road rage these days. There's more publicity about road rage incidents. But I myself, at one time or another in the past, have just um, kind of gone a little bit really mad about <laughs> trivial incidents in traffic. And uh, although I'm happy to state that I have never actually used uh, my two-ton battering ram uh, of a vehicle, uh, to assault or threaten another human being, there are certainly times when I have certainly really wanted to. And the question is, Susan, what are you thinking of? Susan, <laughs> you think you're a decent human being. But for, for this moment, in this time, in this place, you were in command of a vehicle going 60 miles an hour, and you really, really kind of wanted to cut that son of a bitch off. Uh, <laughs> And then you come home and you say, what? Where did that come from? This is terrible. I must be a horrible person. And the challenge is, no, you're not a horrible. No, Susan, I say to myself, looking in the mirror, uh, you may or may not be a horrible person, but you may also actually simply be a human being uh, capable of really wanting to pop that guy one at the same time that you believe you're a decent human being. And of course, uh, the fundamental issue there is, uh, as uh, Andre Kosciuszko says at one point in one of these novels, somebody says, look, the Holy Mother made you what you are. You are as God made you. And Andre says, yes and no, in somewhat stronger terms than that. He says, the Holy Mother made me what I am. She made me capable of feeling these impulses and instincts she did not make me to yield to them. And that's what uh, Andre's struggle comes down to, in my opinion, is look, to look at his, his struggle is to look at himself, to fully acknowledge the fact that he is capable of extreme atrocities, and he's capable of fully enjoying them to a significant extent while he's in that situation. And he insists that... It's part of his personality, but it's his personality, and it is his challenge not at that point to continue to believe that he's a good guy because he kind of uh, <laughs> kind of loses that battle fairly early on, Just but that this is human. <laughs> this is part of who he is, and he will not try to deny it. Yeah, like Andre's ability to enjoy his work, his, his torture is just further down the road that road rage is on. 
uh, in all of us. But speaking of torture, uh, we know, of course, now that as an interrogation technique, uh, science raises some questions as to the effectuality of torture. And yet the jurisdiction, despite being clearly more advanced than our 21st century Earth, uses it all the time. Uh, why is torture back in vogue in this future? All right, you know, let's, let's talk about torture a little bit. There are certainly times and places in which you can take somebody out back behind the Dempsey dumpster and go upside his head with a two-by-four, and you'll get an answer that you can use. But once a, once a system of torture becomes institutionalized, once you formalize the situation to an extent of, for instance, uh, uh, torturing somebody until they confess to a crime that you have already decided they are guilty of, once torture becomes a, a formalized, ongoing thing, uh, it is true that 19 times out of 20, a reasonable human being being atrociously tortured is going to be figuring out what, what they need to say to make it stop. Like leading the witness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, historically, let's go to Northern European history and talk about the uh, the Templars, Knights Templars, or your average everyday witch, or your average everyday torturer. Excuse me, your average everyday uh, traitor or plotter or schemer. Yeah, you haul them off the tower, for instance, and you do atrocious things to their bodies, and and they will quite naturally tell you what they think you want to hear to make it stop. And then, very frequently, historically speaking, uh, people will go to their deaths at the stake or the noose or whatever, uh, protesting that the confession was coerced. So there's that. One, sometimes it works. Two, most times it doesn't. Now let's look at jurisdiction. And the institutionalized of torture is an institutionalization of torture as an instrument of state. Because it's really important to me to to, uh, communicate that that is what torture is doing in the current judicial system, in the current judicial environment. It has really got very little to do with uh, gaining information that can be usable for anything but increasing the level of social control that you exert over a subject population. Torture is part of jurisdiction fundamentally, because jurisdiction is losing control over jurisdiction space. The bench has been getting bigger and bigger. The bigger it gets in terms of the number of world families, the sheer variety and richness of the environment that it continues to expand into, the more difficult it is for any such government to maintain control over its environment. Uh, One of the One of the ways in which, historically, in terms of Earth history, we see governments uh, respond to the issue of losing control over their governed population is to resort to terror tactics of one sort or another. To knuckle down harder? Knuckle down harder. What's that that quote from Star Wars? I don't know if I've got the quote right, but it's... uh, uh, it's the first Star Wars movie, at least the first one released. The the more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers? Will slip through your fingers. Exactly! That's the right <laughs> one, yes. So the jurisdiction is in this uh, sort of a situation. It's in the uh, tightening control sort of situation, and people are responding by slipping through its fingers to God Beyond Space. 
but it's a question of legitimization, is that a word? Yeah. Of uh, the jurisdiction's uh, government by demonstrating to everybody that if we have apprehended some kind of a criminal of a certain sort, then it's only because that criminal is actually guilty. Uh, Everything that we do is just correct and right, because if I arrest you for stealing a uh, packet of graham crackers, you will confess to stealing a packet of graham crackers. Whether or not you ever stole a packet of graham crackers in your life, uh, whether or not you stole a packet of Twix or a packet of sunflower seeds, uh, if we arrest you for stealing a packet of graham crackers, you will confess to to stealing a packet of graham crackers because only in this way can we demonstrate to the world at large that we wouldn't have arrested you for stealing a packet of graham crackers unless you actually had. So part of the institutionalization of torture under jurisdiction is to serve as a validation for the rule of law and the judicial order. There is an Irish poet whose name goes out of my mind that I heard once speak. He had a poem that he recited. It was called Prisoners of the Tower. And it started out by saying, I can hear them now, prisoners of the tower. Their their faces blind from centuries of barbed wire. If you are guilty, you know you are guilty. If you were not guilty, you would not be here. You are here, therefore. Gotcha. So you're not arresting them because they're guilty. They're guilty because you're arresting them. Yeah, and if I have arrested you, then you are guilty. And we will we will do what we need to do to obtain your consent and admission to the fact that you are guilty of whatever I arrested you for. It must be nice to never be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the jurisdiction is starting to run scared. We can't admit that we were ever wrong. No. If no, we admit that we were wrong, then there might be room for challenging the bench and everything that it stands for. And we can't afford that because we're already skating on thin ice and we can feel it cracking underneath our feet, the immense weight of the jurisdiction's bench, and we're running scared there. Yeah, and this all sounds crazy to us because that's not what our our justice system is founded on, but there are historical precedents for this kind of thinking, and we've alluded to a few of them already. Um, specifically, this put me in mind of the magistrates in Qing Dynasty China. Uh, were they, I mean, you said it a little bit, but how much of that was a point of inspiration, and did you have any other period in history that inspired you? Hmm, well, you know, there's just so much to choose from in terms of history of this sort of human behavior. I really like, it started, it start, probably all started with Judge D. Uh, the Judge D. Mysteries of Robert Van Gulick. Oh, I read those. But aren't they nice? <laughs> they, they, nice is not quite the right word, but they are fascinating. And my favorite Judge D. story is actually not uh, in one of Robert Van Gulick's novels, but uh, but never mind. Uh, the uh, the thing that struck me about Judge D. in Robert Van Gulick's novels, but I think he, he sets those novels in Tang, China, is... Emphasis on staying out of official notice to the maximum extent possible. For instance, Robert Van Gulick has uh, uh, put, has uh, stated, has included in his in his uh, social background, cultural background, the idea that if you want to sue your neighbor for stealing your pig, or for disrespecting your mother, or whatever, and you take your neighbor to court, 
the first thing that's going to happen is that the magistrate is going to have both of you soundly thrashed to impress upon you that you should stay out of trouble with the law under any circumstances, whatever. Right. And, and once you start reading in Chinese history and things that's interesting and, and, and nice and so on and so forth, and once, once you start reading about the, uh, the Qing Emperor and so on and so forth, you run into uh, the Chinese legalists before you get very far. Now, Chinese legalists, they're fascinating. I just love it. The idea of, of government has an emperor, but the theory of government based on the utter inviolability of the rule of law. So that if we arrest you, it's because you're guilty. And we're going to make sure that if we arrest you, the experience is so flamboyantly horrid that nobody who ever hears of it will dare risk falling afoul of the law again. Chinese legalist concept, and we've seen some of this in Central Europe as well, as far as I know, is that if I skin you alive for stealing a loaf of bread, then nobody in your village is going to be able to even consider the possibility of stealing a goat <laughs> because you're going to get sent to life for stealing a loaf of bread. So your mind will not be able to leapfrog over stealing a bread, a loaf of bread to stealing a goat. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's perversely <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> The Chinese legalists have got to be a a, a, fun, a a foundational philosophy for jurisdictions novels. It sure felt like it because I, as I started reading it, that was the first thing that jumped to mind. But then it's only been about a year since I read Judge D. I had to for my very last class at university. Uh, I took a Chinese history course, and that was one of the books we had to read. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. I won't say I feel safe now, Daniel said to Hogg as they reached the base of the boulevard and the soldiers relaxing around the flagpole. Ignoring them, Daniel turned toward the Kaisha's berth. But at least we're out of pistol range for Hockner and his crew. Hogg looked up the hill. Because the slope bulged midway, where the steps were, you couldn't actually see the harbor road from the plaza, even the south edge of the plaza. Yeah, I guess, Hogg said. I'll be glad when we get to a nice clean battlefield where I know who the sides are. Captain Leary, a voice called from behind them. They turned both more quickly than a friendly greeting would have required in other circumstances. 
Rickard Cleveland jogged to catch up with them. He was alone. Where's Officer Mundy, Daniel said. He tried to keep concern and anger out of his tone. Judging from the civilian's reaction, he hadn't succeeded very well. Sir, said Cleveland, his friendly grin going blank. I think Lady Mundy and her secretary may have stopped at the Gulkinder Library. I, the building is right on the plaza, and there didn't seem to be any reason that they shouldn't. I came straight back. Sorry, Cleveland, Daniel said. He turned and they walked together down the cluttered roadway. I had a, um, difficult time clearing the harbormaster's office, and I was just concerned that there'd been problems at your end, too. Oh, no, said Cleveland. They passed on opposite sides of a barrow loaded with fruit, terran apples and other sorts which didn't look like anything Daniel had seen before. Brother Graves has arranged for a barge to load the cargo tomorrow at whatever time you choose. He and I talked about community business, and Lady Mundy went off on her own. The Gulkinder is a library, as I say. It's supposed to be a remarkable collection. Her secretary, Hogg repeated with emphasis. His chuckle meant that he had relaxed also. The Kaisha was in sight, and a welcome sight she was. Daniel hadn't carried a communicator, because that would be out of place for a merchant captain. He had started to second-guess himself even before he ran into Captain Hockner, but intellectually he knew he'd made the right decision. Lieutenant Corey had taken charge in tight spots in the past, and had shown himself clear-sighted and competent. Brave went almost without saying in an RCN officer, though Bone's stupid was not disabling or even uncommon. Corey on the ground would make better decisions than Daniel at a distance. I had expected to leave an anchor watch on the Kaisha and go upriver with the guns, Daniel said. I'm now thinking that I may want to stay aboard for a little while. I expect the parties to lose interest in the ship and crew as soon as the cargo's been offloaded. But Hockner's the sort who might take it into his head to... Well, I don't trust what he might do the next time he gets drunk. I wouldn't mind sticking around for that to happen myself, Hogg said in a deceptively mild tone. The Kaisha's slip was a hundred feet away. A load of copper ingots was crawling slowly down the tram line behind the gantry, but Daniel and his companions would be aboard five minutes before the crane passed in front of the ship. Wochens appeared in the entry hatch. She cupped her hands into a megaphone and bellowed, Six, here, soonest. Daniel broke into a run. Hogg followed, cursing, but he quickly fell behind. Cleveland gave a yelp from farther back yet, since he hadn't reacted instantly to the summons. Daniel had never liked running. Though he was fit from regularly climbing the rigging on the voyage out, those muscles were quite different from the ones which took him lumbering across the floating extension. He timed the bridge's rippling rise and fall reflexively, and up the freighter's boarding ramp. He was panting, but that didn't matter. The mistress called from town, Wochin said, as Daniel panted past her on the way to the bridge. The garrison's sending a couple companies to grab the ship. All aboard now but her and Tovera and Vessi and Hale. The mistress says she can't get back before the trouble gets here. Right, said Daniel as he threw himself onto the command console. Corey was on the facing seat. Corey, light the thrusters and close the hatch. Do we have a link to Adele? Over. Daniel was speaking as though he were on intercom, though he wasn't until that instant. He knew by the way that Kaisha trembled that Pasternak was already cycling reaction mass through the thruster installations. All four nozzles lit at Daniel's command, though starboard was a half step behind the others and caused the ship to lurch.
the hatch began to rise, groaning unhappily. Daniel hoped it wouldn't stick, but that wasn't a critical problem. We'll have to leave the extender. Well, if we get out of this with nothing worse happening, it'll be a win. Daniel, said Adele's voice. Tell Vessie to wait for me at Beardsley and Owens. I don't have a link to her. There won't be any radio communications in 30 seconds. Over. The signal was strong despite the roar of the thrusters across the RF spectrum. She must be sending through the garrison's own communication system. Adele, stay low and take care of Vessie, Daniel said. I'm going to deliver the guns to the transformationists and come back as quick as I can. I hope I'll have company. From what Cleveland had said, there should be three or more hundreds of his fellow cultists back in Pearl Valley. They ought to be willing to help the people who had just dropped an arsenal in their laps. But regardless, I'm coming back. A telltale on the display went from green with a touch of turquoise to a fierce saturated red. The change caught Daniel's eye, but he didn't know for an instant what it meant, besides not being good. Six, said Corey over the intercom. That's the mistress jamming garrison commo. All radio frequency commo, that means. I'd linked Vessie, so she's got the word over. Daniel had been right not to worry about Corey in a crisis. Ship prepared a lift. We're going up river so bloody low that we're going to be a cloud of steam for at least the first ten miles, so be ready for a rough ride. Corey had run the thrusters up to full power with the nozzles open to dissipate the searing, sparkling exhaust. Even so, the Kaisha bucked on thrust and on steam boiling from the slip in gulps and surges. Six, Dorsalea's up and Barnes is out there, Corey said. Do you want me to fold it down, over? Negative, said Daniel. We may want the height, and we'll deal with the antenna carrying away if we have to. Does Barnes have Camo, over? Master Cazalet give me his helmet, sir, croaked the big rigger over the intercom. Unquenched ions must be flaying his bare skin, his throat included when he talked. I can still shoot, and Master Hogg's out here with me. Roger that, said Daniel. Don't shoot unless I give you the word, though. Break. He took a deep breath, then began to close the petals of the thruster nozzles. Lifting. Six out. Daniel brought the Kaisha into a hover, perhaps the most difficult piece of ship handling he'd ever been called on to manage. It would have been bad enough in a warship, even the Princess Cecile, which he knew so well. He had to balance the ship on a tight cluster of four poorly harmonized thrusters instead of the eight that were spread the greater length of the sissy's hull. Further, he had to keep her within ten feet of the surface in the buffeting of steam and reflected thrust, because if she rose higher, she became a potential target for the garrison's anti-ship missiles. As it was, the raised foremast was bobbing well above the horizon line of the missiles in full depression, or that they would hit it if they tried. But the shock of a hit would tip the Kaisha off her column of thrust and probably drop her into the harbor on her side. Ship hang on, Daniel repeated. He didn't trust the thruster's gimbling mechanism, so he cut flow by a minuscule amount to the front unit. It was fed by a separate line, so the other three remained at their previous output. The Kaisha began to tilt forward. Daniel brought up thrust by the same slight amount on all four nozzles. The freighter moved, fell out of her slip in a nose-down attitude, and skidded into the harbor at a pace increasing to a fast walk. They curved around a barge load of ingots that might have sunk the Kaisha if they'd collided. Only then did Daniel see the water taxi, which had been hidden by the bulk of the barge. 
He widened his curve by dialing down the starboard thruster, then brought up power again before the Kaisho wobbled into a crash. Surge from the freighter's thrust swamped the little flatboat, but the boatman and his two passengers would be all right if they clung to the hull. At least they hadn't been seared to skeletons in the exhaust plume. The gate between the flume and the main channel of the Cephasis was closed. There was a blockhouse as well as the wicket keeper's shelter, but the occupants of both had abandoned their posts and were legging it along harborside. They were already at a safe distance. The Kaisha mushed over the dike, jolting slightly. Reflection from the steel girder were sharper than from the bodies of water it divided. Daniel could probably lift higher now because they had brotherhood and the intrusion on which it sat between them and the garrison battery. But for the moment he saw no reason not to continue as they were doing. Ship, this is six, Daniel said. Next stop, Pearl Valley. And then back to pick up, to rescue if necessary, Adele and the others. And to pay out Captain Hockner if that seemed appropriate. Chapter 14 Brotherhood on Corsera Adele and Tovera were walking briskly along harborside when the roar of a ship running up its thrusters echoed about the pool. That was a common event in any harbor, but this time the sound wasn't quite right, even to Adele's ears. Spacers were turning or even coming out of shops to look, so Adele turned also. The Kaisha was skidding across the pool, under full power but holding scarcely above the surface instead of rising at an accelerating pace. The ship seemed headed for the shore. No. It bumped into the flume which fed water to the pool. Moments later it disappeared around the island. Spectators babbled in amazement to one another. Most of the opinions appeared to include the words drunk or bloody fool, but a number of them were complimentary in tone. Adele walked on. The only thing Adele had known about how Daniel would react to her warning was that he would react in the best available fashion. She didn't need to concern herself with him or the Kaisha generally until she had more data. It's next after the tavern, Tovera said conversationally as she followed Adele. Want me to lead? Adele sniffed. No, thank you, she said. Her left hand was already in her tunic pocket, though neither she nor Tovera had carried a weapon in plain sight after they found the alley behind the Gulkander Palace empty. They proceeded in single file. The streets of Brotherhood were rarely crowded. Quite a few of them were narrow, however. Adele and her servant had guessed their way along byways instead of proceeding to Central and marching down it. When they had reached Harborside after a few dead ends, they turned to the right and sauntered as though they weren't in any kind of hurry. Adele smiled minusculely. They weren't in a hurry. Vessie and Hale were as safe in the Outfitters as they would be anywhere, and they would wait for Adele to arrive however long it took. The Kaisha's unusual behavior had drawn everyone, including the apron-wearing bartender, though he had gone inside again, out of the tavern. Half a dozen of them, all well on the way to being drunk, continued to stand in the road. Adele started around them, stepping into the tramway. A short, stocky man saw the movement and caught her right shoulder. His arms were long, as though to make up for his bandy legs. Give us a kiss, sweetheart he said, drawing Adele toward him. There was a clunk. The drunk's eyes rolled upward. 
Tovera had hit the back of his skull with a corner of her attache case. Adele skipped out of the way as the fellow toppled forward. His friends didn't seem to notice. The front of Beardsley and Owens was windowed, though there was a sturdy steel grating outside the casement and the expanse was glazed with eight inch by 12 inch panes instead of two or three rolled plates. The window display was of coiled cable, pipe fittings, and tools, but the items had been dusted recently. It really looked like advertising rather than an assortment of junk. Do you want me? Tovera said. No, said Adele. She pushed the door open with her right hand. The big store was dimmer than outdoors, but Vessie was directly in front of the door. She stood with her back to a pallet of eight-liter paint cans, and her hands crossed in front of her. There were half a dozen other customers in the store, and at least two attendants, but Adele didn't see Hale for a moment. Motion drew her glance to the right. She saw the muzzle of Hale's carbine lifting toward the ceiling. The weapon must have been lying across a low counter, covering the doorway by seeming accident. Good to see you, Vessie, Adele said. Since the lieutenant hadn't addressed her until she was sure that Adele wanted to be recognized. There was some excitement in the harbor. The freighter Kaisha proceeded upriver in surface effect. No doubt her captain had his reasons, Vessie said in a neutral voice. No one in the store was paying obvious attention to the newcomers. Tovera had paused in the open doorway. She came all the way in and looked around. Hale walked over to join them also. Will they hide us here in their warehouse or the like? Adele said quietly. There hasn't been an alarm, but there may be one momentarily. She smiled wryly. Or however long it takes for the garrison technicians to realize that the jamming is coming from their own equipment, which might be longer than I expect. We've given these people a good order, so they should be predisposed to help us. Bessie looked about rather nervously. The paint display hid her completely from the back of the store, so her jumpiness wouldn't be noticed. Tovera stood at a cross aisle, seemingly relaxed, which was sufficient for any concerns Adele had. Mistress, you're in command, of course, Bessie said. But I suggest we go immediately to the Freccia. I'm sure, well, I think, that the Navy will be pleased to help us. I've been talking with the proprietors here. She nodded toward the counter and back, though it and she were mutually out of sight, thanks to the paint. And from what they say, the three militias are just short of being in open warfare. Both the others hate the garrison, and apparently the civilians in Brotherhood all do also. Yes, we'll do that, Adele said. Thank you, Vessie. We'll be back with loading instructions, Vessie called. She waved toward the counter, then followed Adele out of the store. The destroyer and the buildings which had become the naval barracks weren't much farther along Harborside. Adele and Vessie walked shoulder to shoulder ahead of their companions. Adele smiled without letting her lips move. Vessie had become a very useful naval officer under the tutelage of Captain Leary, and it wouldn't be completely unreasonable to suggest that association with Lady Mundy had demonstrated to Vessie that a woman didn't have to become a man to function in a man's world. As they approached the Freccia, an officer whom Adele recognized from imagery as Captain Simona was crossing the boarding ramp. Instead of being aluminum or plastic, the Corsiran Navy had built a sturdy wooden ramp. It was braced against the dock on one end and the destroyer's entry hatch on the other. A double hinge in the middle adjusted for the depth of water in the pool. How can they lift off with all that lumber, said Hale, her first word since Adele met her in Beardsley and Owen.
It'd take hours to disengage it. Well, in an emergency, they could just ignore it, Vessie said. It doesn't seem to be attached to the deck of the entry hold, so if they raise the hatch, the bridge would fall away. She frowned. The wood would probably burn in the thruster exhaust, she added. But in an emergency. I don't think Captain Simona wants to lift, Adele said, considering her data and the assessments she had heard Daniel make. Any more than Admiral Stanzi and Hablinger wants to make orbital patrols. Or lift, I suppose. This isn't the RCN, and the Freccia, more particularly, isn't a warship under the command of Captain Leary. It's all data. Looked at properly, everything in life is a datum. Two spacers, a man and a woman, were on guard at the base of the boarding bridge. They were probably more alert than they might have been if their commanding officer hadn't just passed. But Adele noticed that their uniforms were clean, and they handled their submachine guns as though they'd had some training. Adele strode up to the guards. Vessie halted a step back. The male spacer had two anchors on his sleeve, rather than the female's one, so it was to him that Adele said, I'm Lady Mundy of Cinnabar. The garrison has attempted to steal the cargo of arms which the freighter Kaisha, she pointed across the harbor without breaking eye contact, brought to Brotherhood. I need to talk with Captain Simona at once. Yes, ma'am, the spacer said. He just got back. I'll tell him you're coming. He pulled the communicator from his belt sheath and broke squelch as Adele and her companions marched past. The female guard stared in amazement. The male spacer prodded at his communicator. It might be a while before he realized that the garrison's powerful transmitter was jamming the airwaves. A pity, said Tovera. I thought we might have to kill them to gain access. What? said Hale. I, what did you say? Vessie turned her head slightly and said, Tovera was joking, Hale. She has a dry sense of humor. Tovera has no sense of humor at all, nor any emotions. She's become very good at pretending that she does, however. By now, Tovera was often better at pretending to be a normal human being than her mistress was. But then Adele had never seen the point of the exercise. The wooden bridge might be impractical, but Adele noted that its solidity underfoot was a pleasant change from the queasy uncertainty of most boarding bridges. She was in a mood to find something positive in any situation which would meet her halfway. Her smile was grim, but the thought did make her smile. There were several spacers in the entry hold, but none of them seemed to be on duty, let alone on guard. Adele picked one at random and said, I need to speak with Captain Simona at once. I'm an envoy from Cinnabar. Well, said the spacer, glancing toward the hatch forward. Is someone calling for me? Simona said, re-entering the compartment suddenly. Adele had assumed he'd gone up the companionway to the bridge. I heard my name. I'm Lady Mundy, Adele said. Living as a member of society seemed to require a great deal of repetition. Though she supposed she shouldn't complain, so long as saying something once to each individual was sufficient. It wasn't always enough. Colonel Murciello has attempted to seize the Cinnabar vessel Kaisha with its cargo of arms. We've come here to warn you. Living outside human society was cold, damp, and provided less food than satisfied even one of Adele's limited needs. In other circumstances, one might describe it as dangerous, but the slums compared favorably with Adele's present life in the RCN under Daniel Leary. Danger didn't concern her one way or the other. Come up to the bridge, if you will, your ladyship, Simona said, bowing Adele toward the up companionway. 
She couldn't judge his capacity as a naval officer, but he was certainly a gentleman. She climbed the steel stairs at the brisk pace which she had learned in the closed stacks of major libraries. It hadn't occurred to her at the time that it was good training for an RCN career. The garrison is jamming the RF spectrum to prevent you and the regiment from communicating, said Vessi, her voice echoing up the armored tube of the companionway. Captain Leary sent us to warn you in person. That's not right. Vessi's lying. Adele forced her lips into a smile as she stepped through the hatch at the top of the companionway and turned right toward the Fretch's bridge. She wasn't a spacer by any stretch of the imagination, but she had enough experience by now to know that a warship's bridge would be in the bow on the top level. Bessie is intelligently lying to encourage Captain Simona to believe the truth more quickly than would otherwise have been the case. The truth was that the garrison had resorted to force in a fashion which might lead, and perhaps had already led, to a full-scale coup attempt. Vessie had seen her duty and had done it, with less hesitation than Signals Officer Mundy might have shown. A junior officer started out through the bridge hatch, then stopped and backed in again when he saw Simona following Adele. Sir, he called, something's going on. One of the freighters seems to have gone crazy, and the garrison started jamming everything. Right, said Simona, striding past Adele to sit at the command console. Castiglione? Sound general recall and action stations. Engineering, light the thrusters. A klaxon in the outer hall began to hoot. It was unpleasantly loud on the bridge because all the ship's hatches were open. The PA system was squealing in every compartment, adding to the din. Bending close to Simona's ear, Adele said, Captain, the regiment has a microwave tower on top of its headquarters building on the plaza. You could warn Administrator Tibbs of what's going on. Right, Simona shouted back. Castiglione, connect me to the regiment by microwave soonest. Over. And if I can borrow a console with a satellite link, Adele said, I believe I can warn both Captain Leary and the transformationists. Simona waved generally to the empty consoles on both sides of the bridge, then went back to his microwave conversation. He was showing himself to be thoroughly competent, which was a pleasant surprise to Adele. The Fretches shuddered as her pumps began circulating reaction mass. They were some while short of lighting thrusters, but the Corsiran Navy was doing quite well so far. Whether or not it was performing well enough was a matter for a later time. Adele sat at what was probably the astrogation console and got to work. Pearl Valley on Corsira The Kaisha rested on the sports field beyond the Transformationist Chapel and the rest of the community. Daniel's eyes were closed. He had nothing useful to do until the ground cooled enough to open the ship for unloading. He wasn't exactly asleep, but he was relaxing. He needed rest more than he'd understood until he handed the con to Corey and rose from the console. Three sharp taps snapped Daniel's eyes open. He hadn't bothered to draw the curtain of his alcove when he flopped onto the bunk, but Cazalet was standing outside the hatchway and knocking on the stanchion with his knuckles. Sir? said Abel Spacer and half-pay RCN Lieutenant Cazalet. Master Corey says the locals believe the ground is cool enough to begin unloading and ask us to open up. Do you wish to take command? Thank you, Cazalet, Daniel said, swinging his feet over the side of the bunk and standing up. Tell Master Corey to carry on, though I'll probably be talking to the local leadership about matters not concerned with the ship or her cargo. Matters like retrieving his personnel from Brotherhood, Cazalet stepped back and reported to Corey. 
The interchange had been perfectly formal and proper. The fact that Corey was within ten feet of Daniel and listening to the exchange made it a little silly. Daniel realized that his behavior, collapsing on his bunk, had surprised and probably concerned his veteran shipmates. Aloud, he said, to Cazalet, but therefore to everyone on the bridge. I've handled ships at low attitude before, Cazalet, but I hadn't previously tried these particular games with a tramp freighter. Heaven willing, I'll never do it again. It would be easier to balance an egg on my nose, and an egg wouldn't kill us all if it toppled over. Corey turned in his seat as the main hatch began to shudder open. He said, We knew you could do it, sir. Daniel could have given a number of different responses. The one he chose was the one that came most naturally. He smiled and said, I hope your confidence in me is never misplaced, Corey. He glanced over Corey's shoulder at the main display's real-time imagery. The upper band was the quadrant of their immediate surroundings centered on the main hatch. The band below it showed a reduced panorama of the remaining 270 degrees. Figures in gloves and work clothes were laying sheets of perforated steel planking across a stretch of sod seared dead by the freighter's plasma exhaust. In the background was the forklift, whose prongs held the remaining sheets of PSP. To the side, out of the work crew's way, stood an older man and woman, each holding a briefcase. They weren't dressed much differently from the laborers. Nor was Daniel. He tugged at the utilities he'd been dozing in. The left trouser leg had ridden up to his knee and donned the worn saucer hat which had been lying around the Bergen and Associates office. The whine and vibration of machinery ended with a shudder and a heavy thump. The hatch was now a boarding ramp, its edge bedded firmly in the ground. The work crew placed the final section of PSP so that it mated with the ramp's lip. Time to greet the local authorities, I think, Corey, Daniel said. He followed his acting captain into the entry hold and walked beside him down the ramp. The air was still sharp with ozone and thick with burned sod, but the usual steam bath of a water landing wasn't present. That's Brother Altgeld, who's still the community coordinator, I guess, Cleveland said quietly. And beside him is Sister Rennie, who was a colonel. She's acting as the community's military advisor. And doing a good job from what I can see of the defenses, Daniel said, smiling as though he were discussing the bright sunlight. There were two racks of eight-inch bombardment rockets on gibbled mountings positioned to cover the field from either long side. In the center of the far end was an automatic impeller dug in with overhead cover and camouflage. The field was the only clearing for several miles in any direction in the forested expanse. Apart from Pearl Creek itself, 20 feet wide at this point, there was no other landing zone for anyone arriving by air. Sir, are you ready for us to begin offloading? Called a workman in a cultured, plaisance accent. I've got it six, Corey said, walking toward them. That was another part of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a galaxy filled with hardworking and harmonious persons toiling for the good of the judicial order beneath the canopy of heaven, their voices lifted in songs of thanks and praise to Susan R. Matthews, the author of Fleet Inquisitor. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.